there's so much that we as the health system can do, we as physical therapists can do, and we as the interprofessional team can do. You know, and it, it's sad to say, but you know, there's so much that we can do to better the patient's care, but also to prevent their decline. That, that, that's what drives me. That's Dr. Rachel walton Mao, a physical therapist in geriatric rehab at Grady Hospital. And she hits the nail on the head in thinking about how there's much more that we can do as teams to prevent the physical decline of our patients. But as I've pointed out in other interprofessional episodes, in the hustle and bustle of the hospital and the clinic, we barely get a chance to talk to our physical therapy colleagues about how we can work better as teams. And that brings us to episode number four of our interprofessional series with the American College of Physicians, focusing on learning from physical therapist experts. You can get CME credit for this episode with a link in our show notes. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a general internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Tan, a third year medicine resident at Baylor Scott & White. Hey Shreya, thanks for having me on. Physical therapists have helped me so many times with some of my toughest patients, and after talking to them, I actually do some things differently now. There's lots of practical nuggets in here, and actually, to our surprise, we learned a lot of why things are the way they are. It almost kind of felt like a Mind the Gap episode for a second. For example, the first thing, you know, why is there this pervasive fear of patients falling? To why PTs sometimes document the way they do. To why some of our requests for durable medical equipment gets denied. And lastly, why patients may be getting less rehab than we realize at rehab facilities. And with that, welcome to Quaria. Let's get started. So in the inpatient side of things, it's a pretty common mentality to think, oh, these patients are sick, let them rest, we don't want them to fall. But our physical therapist colleagues pointed out that that mentality may be doing more harm for our patients. From a health system standpoint is... Don't assume that every patient, when they get out of bed, is going to fall. I think we put a lot of fear on our nursing staff, on our health system we certainly have, and on our patients that we, we kind of paralyze them with that fear that they're going, to, they're going to fall when they get out of bed instead of saying, hey, what can you do? Not look at what can't you do. So we clearly want the best for our patients. But why are we so afraid of our patients falling? It seems like every patient has one of those bright colored fall risk bands on their arm. I really blame Medicare because in 2008, they put a financial burden on hospitals. When a patient would fall while an inpatient and have an injury, then Medicare would put a financial burden on that hospital. So hospitals really got afraid and and, and worked diligently to have these fall prevention programs. Unfortunately, what's happened is that we've implemented these fall prevention programs and looked for reasons why they may fall. I think someone said, we're killing them with kindness. I mean, we're we're making them weaker. We're making them more risk of falls. It's eye-opening to think about a single policy's downstream effects, and in particular, how having these financial penalties for falls have impact to the frontline staff in the hospital. That whole mindset and that the impact of fall prevention programs on a nurse's perceived workload. A bed alarm goes off and everybody has to run to that bed. And they're afraid of their job. They're afraid of getting called out, of getting the zero days since the last fall on the wall, <laughs> being that unit. Yeah, you don't want to be that unit. Ugh. 
That aspect of medicine just pains me. The things we do to make metrics look good, but what's swept under the rug is all the workload and stress it has on the frontline staff just to make those pretty PowerPoint bar graphs. It's even more eye-opening just to think about how these hospitals avoiding financial penalties have actually impacted the patients it cares for. That's what's really scary because you put a few of these older patients who have a lot of comorbidities on even just a few days of bed rest and the amount of muscle mass that they lose and the function that they lose, even in a really short period of time, can make the difference between them going home with a family member or some in-home support versus now they have to spend a week or two in a skilled nursing facility. That's Dr. Sharon Gorman, a professor of physical therapy at Samuel Merritt and also works inpatient at Kaiser Health. Most patients, after a little while, the thing that will kill you is laying in bed. You're going to get a bed sore. You're going to get a DVT. You're going to get pneumonia. You're going to get debilitated. I think every piece of evidence that we've discovered is that we overrest people, especially people who maybe are older and are more at risk of developing very quickly a lot of problems with moving around. And I get it. I fight it every day. Oh, but but she's sick. You need to let her rest. And it's like, actually, rest is probably the thing that will kill her. And when we look at what contributes to that thinking from the clinician side of things, sometimes catheters or IV lines are misperceived as reasons why patients can't get out of bed, which is just not the case. And surprisingly, even for our functional independent patients who are not hooked up to anything, they actually get some mixed messages about mobility in the hospital too. They did this great study in Australia where they looked at people who had no contraindications for mobility in the hospital, who were admitted, who were completely independent before they came to the hospital. And they only spent 45 minutes on their feet during the day, during the four days they monitored them. There was no reason these people weren't getting up. The number one reason patients cited that they said they didn't get out of bed was nobody told them they could. Now that I hear it, that study makes so much sense. And perhaps I was just assuming, oh, my patients know they can get up and move around the hallway, but these assumptions were clearly an oversight on my part. Or we think, oh, they have PT on board, so they'll get their exercise in. And I thought that too, but realistically, they don't always get seen by PT. And as we'll talk about later, physical therapy is also pretty stretched thin for time. So there's got to be some actionable steps that we all can take. Changing the health system, helping the nurses feel more comfortable moving patients, the nurses and the nursing assistants and the physicians. I mean, we have talks with the physicians and say, you know, you know, this is how you, you watch somebody stand up. This is what we're looking for. Um, you know, all of that, if we're all going in there and saying, have you been out of bed today? Great. You have not. Don't get out of bed because you're going to fall. So, you know, if we all have that mindset of, we expect you to get out of bed. We want you out of bed. We're going to help you get out of bed. And that's exactly what I'm going to take away for the next time I'm on floors, especially if I don't have the power to change policy or penalties that the hospital gets dinged for. At least I can be more mindful about asking our patients about getting out of bed, encouraging movement that's safe for them, and educating them, hey, you know, lying in bed all day, you're going to get weaker, lose muscle mass, and let's try to prevent some of those complications. So another thing that comes up on the wards, and even in the clinic, is documentation. 
Those notes can feel super tedious for everyone, but what we learned from our physical therapist colleagues was that what we document can really impact our patient's care. Concrete example, I'd say like getting that really good idea of what baseline mobility was like and when was that? Like, are we talking about three months ago because somebody's been declining slowly? Are we talking about a week ago when this started? What is the baseline and what were they functioning at at that level? Were they independent? Did they need help? Did they use any kind of device? Were they using a cane or a walker? And then for things like ambulation, were they just walking inside the house or were they able to actually walk in the community as well? If you can get those kind of nailed down, that really helps build a picture of, oh, three months ago, this person was walking independently in the community without a device. And over the last three months, up until when they were admitted yesterday, now is completely dependent, can't stand up, is totally unable to get out of bed by themselves. And yes, sure, our physical therapist colleagues are going to gather that information too. But for us to understand and document the patient's functional status in multiple places in the EMR can go a long way in preventing things from getting lost in the chart. Physical therapists are often the only people that that measure functional status in primary care or in the hospital setting, really. Um, And that information isn't often communicated well across the continuum. So physicians don't often include functional information in discharge summaries from the hospital. That's Dr. Jason Falvey, a geriatric physical therapist and postdoctoral fellow at the Yale School of Medicine. To put what he's saying into context, one study found four in five discharge summaries did not have the patient's functional status compared to baseline. And things such as the need for assistive devices or future PT needs were completely missing from half of the discharge summaries. It's often not in primary care or follow-up notes from your primary care physician visits. So one of the issues that arises is physical therapists often are seeing patients without really any context of their prior level of function and prior measurements. It's really difficult to kind of prognosticate. So I think if I'm going to extend the challenge to all of our interdisciplinary colleagues, it's be like therapists in the way that function is kind of a central part of measurements that you take during visits or are always asking about it. Challenge accepted. And I still remember the few times that I've been admitting a patient and there was actually clear documentation of the functional status in the outpatient setting or in a prior discharge summary. That information was gold. Yes, gold indeed. And you know, the more I think about it, we trend creatinines, we trend hemoglobins all the time. That's just a knee-jerk reflex of ours when we're presenting patients. But we're not good about trending functional status. And I'd argue that a patient's functional status, say, over the course of a year, is probably more important than that small creatinine bump from last year. Exactly. It's good to get in the habit of documenting the functional status especially because prior PT notes can easily get lost in the chart. I remember the few times I do get a chance to dig into the chart and look at a prior PT note. I gotta be honest, sometimes the PT notes, at least the ones that I've seen, are sometimes hard to interpret. Yeah, and I'm sure they feel the same way about our lengthy notes too, with our acronyms and other medical jargon. But yeah, with physical therapy notes that I've seen, I agree with you. They have kind of these tables of different movements and numbers. I'm not really sure what those numbers mean. In the midst of getting pages, what I actually end up usually doing is just scrolling down and seeing what do they recommend for the disposition of a patient. Yeah, I do the same sometimes, but it can be really hard to interpret those disposition recommendations. 
Sometimes I feel like it's in a coded language. But luckily, our physical therapist colleagues are here to share their perspective of what's going on behind the scenes. They're trying to get us away from recommending site kind of specific things. And it ends up just being all this coded language that means the same thing, which is a little frustrating. I'll just own that. That's because we've been told don't say the level of facility because that gets the discharge planners into issues potentially. It gives them a little more flexibility depending on availability of beds and what people's insurance says. Okay, that's really helpful to know. So it may not be the PT's choice to not write the precise place they recommend, but they have to write their notes in a certain way to let the discharge planners have more options than where the patient goes. Mm, okay. I'm all about options for our patients, so I get that. I get that. But sometimes it's still kind of vague language, some of their recommendations, like recommend intermittent therapy. What does that really mean? Technically, isn't intermittent therapy everywhere? We talk about intermittent therapy, and that either means outpatient or home health. And frequent therapy means, you know, skilled nursing facility. And frequent therapy with rehab means acute rehab. And everyone's kind of got their own little lingo. And I would say that's a good one to just go to your rehab department and go, what do you mean when you write this? I just had that discussion today with a doctor who called me about my patient. And he's like, so you're recommending? And I go, intermittent therapy. And he goes, so you mean home health? And I was like, yeah. I'm not typing that, but I'll tell you on the phone. That's what I mean. So my takeaway from talking to the physical therapist is yes, documentation can feel soul crushing at times. And there are reasons beyond their control as to why they have to document in a certain way. Sometimes a conversation with your local physical therapist with the lingo they use can go a long way. And on our documentation end, we may sometimes neglect to mention their functional status on discharge. But this information can be a game changer for the next practitioner who sees them in the outpatient setting, or unfortunately, if they're readmitted. And I've actually changed my own notes and even asked my teams to add in their functional status in the one-liners. So for me, hearing a presentation of a 63-year-old male who was previously walking a mile a day with a cane, prior MI, coming in with shortness of breath, is very different from the same 63-year-old male, primarily homebound, getting a home health aid assistant three days a week, prior MI coming in with shortness of breath. It clues me in right away kind of how far away this person is from their baseline functional status and what might be their realistic goals I'm working towards for discharge. Let's shift fully to the outpatient setting. I think we've all seen patients in clinic with back pain or some other ache who we send to physical therapy and they come back and they're still not better. Can we say that the patient failed physical therapy? There's a conception that we are ordering physical therapy or a patient failed physical therapy without really defining what that means. So I would never send somebody to the doctor and then have them not get better and say that they failed medicine. <laughs> they didn't fail medicine. Yeah. They they just, you know, didn't get better from that one particular intervention or that one particular drug that was tried for hypertension. And maybe you have to try a different one. Um, so similarly for physical therapy, you know, if a patient goes to therapy and quote unquote fail therapy, really ask some probing questions like what were they doing? What what kinds of activities were were not successful. So those probing questions or even asking about what their adherence was like doing exercises at home can help us understand why the patient might still be in pain. So we may be doing our patients a disservice by prematurely saying that therapy didn't work. 
Or another possibility is that we didn't explore all the available physical therapy options. Because there's a lot of different interventions that physical therapists prescribe. So if a patient has is having falls or dizziness or balance issues, and they're sent to therapy and they work on their balance problems and they're still busy, it doesn't mean that they fail therapy. It might mean that they need a different type of therapy. So maybe that person goes to vestibular rehabilitation and they have positional vertigo or they have some sort of vestibular issue from a concussion that is really causing some of those issues and balance exercises weren't the appropriate intervention. So I I ask clinicians to really, that terminology is hard for patients because that also makes them think that physical therapy is kind of a one-size-fits-all, that therapists all kind of do the same thing or, or we're kind of technicians. And I think there's a lot more, especially at the expert level for therapists that, uh, that go on. So it might be important to identify those therapists in your community for, you know, that are geriatric focused, that really do more balance falls neuro. That's a very different brand of therapist than does orthopedic issues. That's a very different brand than people who are, are experts in home care or cardiopulmonary specialties. Oh, I am very guilty of this. I thought all physical therapists were similar. And I guess just like internal medicine has different subspecialties, Physical therapists also have expertise in different areas. I mean, there's seven recognized board specialties in physical therapy. So there's a lot of uh, factions of therapy that uh, are maybe a little bit under-recognized publicly. Under-recognized indeed. And I can see how finding and building a network of those physical therapy specialists can be super helpful, especially for patients who have more challenging issues. So my takeaway from this is that patients might require either longer treatment courses of physical therapy, or we might need to just explore different or more specialized types of therapy altogether. And let's avoid saying, quote unquote, failed physical therapy and passing that jargon on in the chart without really having those probing questions to justify it. So let's say you see a patient who comes into the office using some durable medical equipment, also known as DME, to get around. How do you know if what they're using is appropriate for that patient? I kind of use a rule of thumb that they're, you know, more than 25% of their weight, and that's kind of a subjective judgment, but they're leaning pretty heavily on a cane. You know, I usually suggest something a little bit more restrictive, like a walker. But again, walkers are very difficult to get around certain homes. They get tangled on stuff. They get caught on stuff. They get caught in doorways. So by the time you're getting somebody a walker, you know, it's always worth, you know, either maybe just checking in with PT or or having them take a look, even if it is a couple weeks away. And rolling walkers generally are great for people who need that short rest break. So that might be your chronic cardiopulmonary conditions. Rolling walkers are great for them, COPD and CHF, um, because one, they're leaning forward on that walker, so they're able to kind of brace themselves and use those accessory muscles for breathing um, and, and, uh, and, and dyspnea relief, which is a really valuable tool for them, as well as being able to lock it up and sit on that seat and, and be able to take those short little breaks. I really appreciate that rule of thumb. If they're using 25% of their weight, it may be time to upgrade to, let's say, a rolling walker that gives them more support. But some of the equipment can get really fancy. So who pays for all these pieces of equipment? Yeah, so Medicare typically pays for an assistive device every year. 
Um, so that's really important to keep in mind because if you encourage a patient and prescribe a cane and then they bill it to their insurance company, that is the only piece of equipment that they need. And if it's not the appropriate piece, you, you know, for an entire year, they're paying out of pocket for any other mobility related pieces of equipment that they need. Medicare only pays 80% of any of them as well. So patients are really on the hook for 20% of the cost of any of these things. So there is a, a socioeconomic burden associated with some of these devices too for patients who don't have a supplemental payer or, or supplemental Medicaid insurance. So there, there are other considerations too that often patients are maybe unaware of uh, until they get that mm-hmm. Honestly, that makes the two of us. <laughs> the three of us. <laughs> Even as a prescribing doctor, it's really hard to know what gets covered and how much things cost. For example, Medicare doesn't cover most items that make things more convenient or comfortable. This includes things like stairway elevators, grab bars, toilet seats, or ramps. And on top of that, when we are able to help our patients get DME items approved, it seems to all circle back to our favorite thing documentation. (laughs) And to hammer that home, CMS found that about half the time a payment might not go through, for example, on power wheelchairs, was because things like medical necessity weren't documented properly. Some of the time for physical therapy, it's really how you document stuff and how specific you are about the person's deficits and what they can and what they can't do and how that affects things that make them safe or not safe that can help you get equipment or more visits. So some common pitfalls that we may neglect include things like documenting the patient's symptoms at limit ambulation, why their current assistive devices aren't working, and their inability to perform their ADLs in their current home setting. Yeah, so for example, documenting for, say, a powered wheelchair, you basically have to say this patient is unable to be mobile in their home situation without a powered device and that another less expensive assistive device like a cane or a walker will not work. So to recap, basically Medicare can pay for equipment once a year, but this is more so if your patient needs to upgrade their DME. So if you're going to prescribe it, make sure it's appropriate for the patient or loop in your physical therapy colleagues for help. And after doing some research, much to our chagrin, say your patient has a broken wheel on their wheelchair and needs to replace the same type of equipment. It's actually only covered once every five years. But either way, if you're going to prescribe the equipment, the takeaway is to be mindful about documenting the medical necessity to save you from some pesky phone calls later. And if you don't feel like fighting with insurance and your patient can afford it, it might sadly just be easier for your patient to order the medical equipment on Amazon or some other online equipment site. The last thing we spoke to our physical therapist about was how many times our patients have complained that their rehab stay to get quote unquote stronger actually had very limited rehab. And there are policy reasons as to why. I think as a therapist, we constantly are fighting um, reimbursement struggles. So back in the day, all the way back to before 2019, Skilled nursing facilities got reimbursed by the volume of services, so they basically had autonomy to charge in tiers based on the total therapy time per week they delivered. So the more therapy a patient got, the more the facility got reimbursed. So rehabs had a pretty nice incentive to get more hours of physical therapy. It gave the the skilled nursing facility a higher payment, um, which was a blessing and a curse, but really did, you know, kind of 
nursing facilities highlighted the value of therapy uh, and really invested in their therapy staff. The curse was that this old model gave nursing homes a financial incentive to prioritize the amount of physical therapy over medical necessity. CMS didn't really like this and moved to a new model in October 2019 where reimbursements was based on a comprehensive evaluation of patient needs, which honestly sounds pretty great on paper, but it's a lot messier in real life. For therapists, it really disincentivized nursing homes from providing therapy, and so most nursing homes responded by decreasing the amount of therapy that patients got without really any idea of how that was going to impact outcomes. So what really helped me understand this was thinking about it from the perspective as if I was running a for-profit nursing home. Yes, you can't just bill anymore for more hours of therapy, and now you get a set amount of money for a patient's diagnosis and complexity. So what are you going to do? So I'm going to try to save money where I can, and that's exactly what happened. So unfortunately, this led to a lot of nursing homes laying off therapy staff or doing group therapy when what patients really needed was individual therapy. So now a skilled nursing facility won't get paid as much for providing 720 minutes of therapy. So the immediate result has been to reduce the amount of therapy provided because it's not profitable anymore. Um, So a patient with a stroke, a patient with a stroke may receive, you know, may have been receiving two hours of therapy per day and may now only be receiving 30 to 45 minutes per day. Um, and in some facilities, wow. we're hearing anecdotal reports that that's happening. And then similarly, in home care agencies, you know, the number of visits that, that are really uh, incentivized to cover are, are starting to decrease. That is so disheartening. This is what happens if we put profits before patients. And I can't even imagine how frustrating it must be for a physical therapist to have so many third parties interfering with their practice. We've kind of allowed ourselves to be managed where we've been such in a model of being reimbursed by insurance. That's why the productivity is being pushed on us is because the the reimbursement rates are, are declining. I can provide beautiful health care or physical therapy to this patient who then thinks it's great value, but they're not the ones that associate a, a payment or a cost to that value. It's a third party. And the impact of insurance paying less is similar to what we experience in primary care, where we basically have to pack in as many patients as possible in a day. We all know the disservice that jam-packed days do for our patients, as well as for us on the front lines. And it seems like the buck doesn't just stop there. So insurance reimbursements aren't just driving the volume of patients that physical therapists now need to see in a given day. It's also driving how many times that they can even see an individual patient. It can be really difficult, and I'm sure it's just like what you guys experience, really frustrating where, you know, an insurance company decides off the bat that somebody only gets so many visits, and you're like, what do you mean? You didn't even ask me what I thought before you already said how many visits, and now I'm going to have to write a letter and spend how many hours on the phone talking to people to try and get more visits for my patient. In the outpatient world is probably one of the most frustrating and burnout related items that PTs deal with is this whole, oh, their diagnosis is this, so they only get this much care, which especially for PT, like I I see patients with all kinds of diagnoses. It does not matter what your diagnosis is. It's how are you not able to move? 
And if you don't have that information, why are you telling me how many visits I have to get somebody better? Because I can have somebody with COPD who I think only needs three visits, and I can have another person with COPD who I think needs 12 or 15 visits. Because COPD is giant, and it's not like one thing, and it's how is it affecting your function as a person with COPD. That's actually a perspective that I hadn't heard. It's bizarre that the number of PT visits a patient gets in the outpatient setting is determined by the diagnosis, like back pain. But I'm pretty sure we all know two people's back pain is not the same. Yeah. You know, I really hope this episode motivates people to get more involved in policy and leadership. It's just crazy how much that trickles down and the impact it has. So what I'm going to take away the next time I have a patient who complains about their experience at rehab and how little rehab they got, at least I'll have a deeper understanding of why, and maybe I won't try to sell the whole going to rehab to get stronger and getting more physical therapy when that might not be the case. And the other thing I'm going to take away is just having more empathy for our physical therapy colleagues who seem to also be under a lot of pressure for productivity in clinical care. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips, share your challenges, tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page, on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you to Dr. Kathy Sasson for the accompanying graphic, to Solon Kelleher for audio editing, to our peer reviewers, uh, physical therapist Kim Levenhagen and Jennifer Ryan, and thanks to you. As always, we love hearing feedback, so email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. And opinions expressed are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. 